Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Doing all right? Good. I'm glad to hear it. If we have not met before, my name is Drake, and I get to serve as one of the student ministers here at Christ Church. The next two weeks are big weeks for the student ministry. Uh, today, the fifth and sixth grade students are heading to Maranatha Bible Camp, which is awesome. It's uh, in Everton, Missouri, in between here and Springfield. And uh, they're going to they're gonna be learning a lot about Jesus, singing some praise songs, and zipping down the zip line. It's going to be a blast. Uh, next Sunday, the high school students are loading up in charter buses, and we're going to Holland, Michigan, which will be uh, so fun, so good. And uh, I want to I want to encourage you to, to pray with me. One of the prayers that I pray most frequently uh, for our high school students, and, and this, is, uh, this, is, this is something that's big on my heart, is that I, would, I pray that God would call a lot of our high school students uh, into ministry, that they would go to Bible college, they would train for ministry, and uh, they would, that, that you guys would fire me here in like six years or something and hire one of the students in the student ministry to take my job. So I know it's an odd prayer, but that's one of my prayers. So uh, if you would be praying for our students the, over the next two weeks as we go to camp, I would be so grateful. So uh, you've probably heard by now that Christ Church has taken a trip to Israel in 2020, and I want to encourage you to, to go on that trip. I think that that trip will be well worth your time and money, and I can say that because in 2017, I went to Israel when Christ Church went, and I had an absolute blast. It was a great experience. There, there are two experiences, though, that are kind of seared into my memory. I will never forget these experiences. The first experience is when I had to tell Mark Christian that I had lost my passport and it wasn't a joke. And the way that Mark looked at me, I thought I was going to lose my job. Uh, So the last day we're there, we're in Jerusalem, right? And um, the week had gone great. We're about to leave that night. But in the morning they say, hey, make sure you get your passport and all that stuff ready. And I was like, I haven't seen that guy in a while. So I should probably go try to find that, right? And I looked all day and uh, I couldn't find it. So I did the responsible thing. 30 minutes before the bus left, I said, hey, Mark, uh, I I don't know where my passport is, man. And uh, yeah, I thought, but I'll I'll tell you what's interesting though about this whole scenario is that Michael DeFazio was on the trip and Michael's like a big brother to me. And uh, he's always kind, always encouraging, but he also messes with me all the time. And what's interesting to me is that it was Michael DeFazio who found my passport when nobody else could find my passport. So I think he was messing with me. So uh, the, second, the second memory, though, I, I tell you this story. And I, I need you to know that I have permission for my wife to tell you this story. Uh, you should also know that she tells this story better than I do. So if you, if you know Andrea and you see Andrea today, you should ask her to tell you this story. But this story takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where uh, the scripture that we're studying today, uh, this is where Jesus is located in that scripture. And this day started out like any other day. We wake up, we eat breakfast at the hotel. Man, I ate my weight in hummus that week. We, we go, we do some sightseeing in the morning, and then we go to lunch at this little deli-type uh, place. And when we go into the deli-type place, they offer you um, a falafel, or I don't know how to say this word, but it's like gyro, gyro, hero, hydro. It's G-Y-R-O. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, so because I didn't know how to say the word, I ordered a falafel and a Coke. Andrea also ordered a falafel and a Coke. We sit down with some of our new friends that we met, and uh, we eat, and then we head off to the Garden of Gethsemane. I- I'm so excited 
to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I, w- I was anticipating this visit. I had read so much in the scriptures about this. I had studied this in Bible college. I was ready to visit the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we roll up in our bus, we hop out, and I totally forget that my wife is on this trip, wanting to enjoy this trip with me. I just kind of leave her, and we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I think we have a picture up here uh, to kind of show you what the Garden of Gethsemane looks like. But you can see these nasty, gnarly trees there on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means oil press. And so we're not entirely sure if this is the exact location where Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but yours. But it's very close to this. It would have been well known uh, in ancient times. But we go there and I'm just exploring. I, I'm in heaven, man. I'm like, this is awesome. And right next to the Garden of Gethsemane is the Church of All Nations. And I had heard about this church in Bible college. I had studied a little bit about this church. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. And so I go in there and, and I have a very, 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 very elementary understanding of some of the biblical languages, and they have inscriptions in there, and I'm trying to read some of these inscriptions. I'm like in Bible college nerd heaven right now, and uh, once again, totally forgot my wife was on this trip with me, and uh, I I find this prayer in one of the biblical languages, and I'm like, I'm going to try to pray this prayer in a language that I don't actually speak. And so I I start, and before I I get to amen, one of the ladies on the trip, she taps me on the shoulder, and she says, "Um, honey, you might want to go check on your wife outside. And I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot she was here. And so I walk out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and right there next to the corner of the church is my beautiful bride standing over a trash can delivering her falafel back to the promised land. And um, it, it, was, it, was not, it was not good. So I, I walk up to the trash can, and I say, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And she politely told me to get away from her, um, that I had abandoned her. And so I walk over to, to Mark and Michael. I'm like, what's up, guys? Um, Mark says to me, dude, we have seen this before. Uh, she's pregnant. And I'm like, ooh. And so I walk over to the trash can. I, I say, scoot over. I deliver my falafel back to the, back to the promised land. But no, she, she wasn't pregnant. She healed, she healed real quickly. She recovered. Uh, but Mark and Michael, they did tell me that if we were pregnant, we needed to name that baby falafel. So um, the, the Garden of Gethsemane has a, a special place and Andrea and I's heart, uh, and it has an important place in the narrative of the gospel story. For It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but your will. When he was a student at Yale University, William Borden penned these words into his journal. He said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And, and that's what I want to echo for our church today. In fact, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. The gospel teaches us to say no to self and yes to Jesus every time, every time. We're going to jump on the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, this prayer is, is found in the Synoptic Gospels, which means it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're going to be looking at Matthew's account primarily today in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Let me read you the account. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There's a lot going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it's obvious to me that the focus of Gethsemane is prayer, specifically the prayer that Jesus prays three times. John and Luke tell us in their gospel that Jesus and his disciples often went to the Garden of Gethsemane together. And Luke tells us in chapter 5 of his gospel that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What's interesting to me, though, is that while Gethsemane might have been a lonely place, you just saw the trees. Can you imagine that pitch black, those gnarly, nasty trees? That's a lonely place. But he wasn't alone. The Father was there, and he also brought his disciples to the Mount of Olives with him. It seems to me that the scene would have played out like this. Jesus and the 11 disciples would have been making their way to the Mount of Olives. He would have stopped everyone, and he, he, would, he would have set eight of them down. I say 11 disciples just so you know that Judas was not there. For Judas would enter the garden, but it would not be with Jesus. It would be with the arresting party. So Jesus brings 11 disciples. He, he sits eight of them down. And then he taps three of them, Peter, James, and John, to come a little further with him into the garden. And with these three, he stops them, and he admits something to, me that, 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 or admits something to them that surprises me, astounds me a little bit. And I have to remember in this moment that while, yes, Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. And this is what he admits to his disciples. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, we've seen, we've seen Jesus express emotion before. We've seen Jesus in his ministry marked by kindness and compassion. We, we've seen Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says that Jesus wept. We've seen Jesus express emotion before. But, but this is something new. This is something different. This is, a, this is a little bit hard to watch. Our Jesus, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I think this is why Jesus invites his friends to come pray with him. For, for this, this, this weekend is, is about Jesus and his crucifixion. It's going to be tough. He asked Jesus, or he asked his friends if they would keep watch. And this might mean like keep watching the security guard sense of things. But Jesus is already resolved. He knows the betrayal is coming. He's not afraid of that. He asked them to keep watch. Keep watching the sense of pray to pray for Jesus, but, but to pray also for themselves. For yes, Jesus is the one to be crucified, but the course of events that will follow will also prove difficult for the disciples as well. And so he says, pray, pray. And then Jesus heads off deeper into the garden by himself. Luke tells us a stone's throw away. And in this scene, we get an intimate look between the father and the son's relationship, ours before the son's crucifixion. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
yet not as I will, but as you will. Last week, I talked about John 17. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. In the beginning of John chapter 17, it says that Jesus stood and looked toward heaven. That was his posture. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his posture is quite different, isn't it? Jesus, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, has fallen flat on his face. As a community, I want us to realize that sometimes it's okay to not be okay. And when we're not okay, it's okay to let God know that we're not okay through the posture in which we take during prayer. God is not upset with Jesus. He's not mad at Jesus for Jesus falling on his face. God loves Jesus no differently, whether Jesus is standing tall or if he's taking a fall. God still loves him. He still hears him. And God will still love you and still hear you. God recognizes our position in life. And in the case of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is Jesus is flat on his face, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Heaven sends an angel to help him and to strengthen him in his time of need. But I feel the need to also say, because sometimes people will, will take posture or position in life when things aren't going well, they, they, will, they will tend to compromise on the Father's will, but that is not okay. It's okay to let God know that you're not okay, but it's not okay to compromise on the Father's will for you. And you will not see Jesus compromise ever, but especially in the garden, you will not see him compromise. Jesus returns to his disciples in verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, my first reaction to reading this part of the narrative is the anger. I'm, I'm angry at the disciples a little bit because here's Jesus in his time of need. He's asked them to keep watch, to pray, and they've fallen asleep on him. But I think, that, I think the gospel writers include this detail about the disciples dozing off to illustrate a point for us. When I was in the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I wrestled. And uh, I'll say it right now, I was not a good wrestler. Like, I was actually one of the worst wrestlers that Owasso uh, ever had. But I, I thought I wanted to wrestle because my great uncle Bill was a wrestler. He wrestled at Oklahoma State, and what's awesome is that he also wrestled in the 1948 London Olympics. So like as a young kid, my parents would tell me these stories about Uncle Bill as a great wrestler, and I was like, this is probably in my blood. Like I could probably do this thing. I could probably become a great wrestler, and I, w I could not have been further from the truth. But what, what, was, what was worse than being pinned almost every single time I got out there on the mat was that I had to compete in a leotard. You know what I'm saying? Like that singlet was not flattering for anybody, especially pudgy little Drake, all right? This was a terrible time in my life, but I would get out there on the mat, Coach Bullock, Coach Trout, they were my wrestling coaches, and they were fantastic coaches. I felt like I was disappointing them every single time I stepped out there, but I remember them consistently yelling, not mad at me, but encouraging me like, Drake, only you can do this. Only you can beat him. For this is the first sport I had ever played where it was a one-on-one -on -one competition, me and some other guy. And I was always bewildered by how did these 12-year-olds already have leg hair? Like I had no leg hair. And they were like full-grown men with leg hair kind of leg hair. You know what I'm saying? Like I had no idea how this, but my coach was yelling, Drake, only you can do this. And I look at this gospel story. And, and I look at Jesus and, and, the, and the opposite is true. For, for the disciples need saving, but they can't do it. 
For only Jesus can do it. Only, only Jesus and Jesus alone can drink the cup of God's wrath to set them free from their sins. Only Jesus can do it. And so when we see the disciples falling asleep, I think it's the gospel writers reminding us that these disciples, including us, we are unable to save ourselves. In this weekend of salvation, we're not the ones doing the saving. We're the ones being saved. And then my, my Savior, he returns to pray. In verse 42, it says, He went away a second time and prayed. My Father... If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The first prayer and the second prayer may seem to be the same prayer, but I don't think that they are. I think there's a little bit difference in the prayer. I see a process in these prayers. And I want to read them both again, but I want to read them from the message paraphrase of the Bible that Eugene Peterson paraphrased for us. So this is the paraphrase of the first prayer. Verse 39. Going a little ahead... He fell on his face praying, My father, if there is any way, get me out of this. But, but please, not what I want. You. What do you want? In summary, Father, is there another way? This is the paraphrase of the second prayer. He then left them a second time. Again, he prayed, My father, if there is no other way than this, drinking the cup to the dregs, I'm ready. Do it your way. Summary of the second, the second prayer. Father, I recognize there is no other way. Now, I'm not saying that the second prayer is better than the first prayer. I see a process of resolve. Jesus resolving to drink the cup. Jesus knowing the pain and suffering that lies ahead is resolved to the will of the Father. And then we go back to the disciples. Unable to take part in this. In verse 43. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. The focus is prayer, but the purpose is the salvation of the world. And don't you see it? It's Jesus and only Jesus who can save the world from their sins by taking on the full wrath of God. And he is resolved to do it. Praise God. For soon it will be finished. And in verse 45, then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Next week, Michael's going to pick up Judas in the arresting party, entering into the Garden of Gethsemane. But I want us to realize that before Judas ever gets to the garden, Jesus is resolved to the cross. He is committed to the Father's will, not because of Judas, but because of his commitment, his resolve to the Father's will for what God has called him to do. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus, resolved to hang on the cross, resolved to be handed over into the hands of sinners, to, to be beaten by the hands of sinners, to be nailed to a tree by the hands of sinners, all of this for God's glory, and to cleanse the hands of the sinners whose hands he was handed over to. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus, resolved in the garden, to the cross, to the Father's will. Jesus. Jesus is asked by the Father to drink the cup. 
A cup is a, is a very a commonplace item in most households. And you have all kinds of cups. They come in various forms and fashions. You have collapsible cups, cups with a lid, cups with a straw. You got Yeti cup, you got Arctic cups, you got all kinds of cups. But no matter the cup, all cups deliver the same purpose. And the, the purpose is to deliver, to deliver the drink to the drinker's mouth. Now in some cups, there's stuff that is good for you. In other cups, there's stuff that is bad for you. When I was a little kid, most of the time I was drinking things in cups that were good for me. Sometimes I would, I would, I would find something in a cup-like container and I was about to drink it, but my parents would say, no, 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 don't drink that. In serious cases, they would even swat the cup out of my hands. Travel back with me to the Garden of Eden. This is the first garden we see in scripture. It says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. What's God saying to Adam? Adam, don't eat from this tree, but to, to change the language a little bit, I want to say, Adam, don't drink from that cup. If you partake in this, you will die. And you know what happens. A God makes woman out of man, and, and they, they go back into the garden. They're naked. They feel no shame. This happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. In the church, we often call this scene in Scripture, Paradise Lost. For the choice of Adam and Eve began the unraveling of paradise into a desert wasteland of sin and death. Do you see the difference of resolve between Adam and, and Jesus? Adam's resolve was not your will, but mine. Jesus' resolve was not my will, but yours. God is, is talking to his son Adam in the Garden of Eden. He says, Adam, don't drink this cup. It will kill you. And God's talking to his only begotten son, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Jesus, I need you to drink this cup. It will kill you. And yet, and yet it's Adam who has the audacity to say, not your will, but mine. The Father's will for Adam was life and joy and abundance and all things good. He had to avoid one tree. And he said, not your will, 
but mine. And then we see Jesus, who has the humility to say, Father, not my will, but yours. Even knowing the pain, the suffering, and death that would cause him. That was his resolve. Sometimes I look at Adam, and I'm a little bit judgmental. And I have to remember that in, the, in this comparison, I'm not Jesus. I'm Adam. For Jesus consistently and always says, not my will, but yours. And I have consistently said, not your will, but mine. I bet a lot of you are in the same boat as me. But praise God, we have a Savior with a different resolve For when Jesus resolved to drink the cup, he resolved to drink my sin and your sin, my shame and and your shame, my death and your death. And in drinking this cup, he brought us life. He brought us life. That's our Jesus. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that I'm, I'm borrowing a line from William Borden, a line that he penned in his journal. William Borden wrote, say no to self. And yes to Jesus every time. That's what the gospel teaches us to do. I want to share William's story with you. When William graduated from high school, his his parents, they sent him on a trip literally around the world. And as he was on this globe trot, he noticed the the global pain and suffering, the, the spiritual, the financial, the physical poverty of the world. It was on this trip that, that William heard from God. God called William to be a missionary. And William committed himself to the Father's will. In the back of his Bible, William wrote two words, no reserves, for he would hold nothing back from the Father's will. William went to Yale University to study, and and William was an outstanding student. But more than that, William uh, was an outstanding follower of Jesus. He led Bible studies on on Yale's campus. He, He reached thousands of students on Yale's campus. It was also at Yale's campus, that that his missionary focus sharpened. For at Yale, God God called William to evangelize a Muslim people group in China. In the back of his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. He would not leave the Father's will. He would not leave the Father's will. Upon graduating from Yale, he got job offer after job offer after job offer from high-paying, respectable, reputable companies. People wanted William to come work for them. But he had no reserves. He had no retreats. God had called him to be a missionary. And so he would be a missionary, for he would not work for man. He would work for God. And so after he graduated, he went to to Egypt to learn Arabic, which was the, the language of the people that God had called him to evangelize. And as he was in Egypt, William contracted spinal meningitis, and he died within a month. But before he died, in the back of his Bible, he wrote two more words. Right under, right under, no reserves, no retreats, William wrote, no regrets. He had no regrets to committing himself to the Father's will. Some of you may be thinking, that's a a bummer of a story to end on. Like, I thought you were going to talk about how he went and he he evangelized thousands, maybe even millions of people know Jesus I think this is a great story to end on because so often I'm focused on the outcome of what I've committed to do. 
Jesus is focused on the obedience to the Father. This is William's story. Forget the outcome. Forget the outcome. Forget what may be. Let's focus on obedience. For if we can't start with obedience, there will be no outcome of the Father's will. We must be resolved to it if anything will come from it. This is what the Father's will. It's it's not always about outcome. It's often about obedience, that we will be obedient to his will. And because he was, William was able to live with no reserves, no retreats. And although he died at the age of 25, this resonates with me, for I'm 25, he was able to write, no regrets to the Father's will. For William lived by this motto, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Church, let that be our anthem. Let that be our anthem. When it comes to finances, saying no to self and yes to Jesus every time. When it it comes to family, saying no to self and yes to Jesus every time. When it comes to our future, saying yes or no to self and yes to Jesus every single time. Let us be that type of community who's resolved to the Father's will. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for this intimate look in the Garden of Gethsemane. We get to look at Jesus. And as he's he's sweating drops of blood, he makes no excuses. He makes no compromise. He says yes to the Father. We may not be able to do everything that Jesus does, But Father, we can echo this prayer. We can say yes to you and no to ourselves. Holy Spirit, give us the power to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.